Thank you, Dr. Kelly. Thank you for having me. A very kind introduction. Uh, before we get started, let me just do a quick check of the audience. Who here is a fellow in the program? Okay, so your interests are hematology, oncology, or mostly heat people? They don't want to be careful. They don't want to be careful. And then who's a faculty? Okay, some people. And then, uh, but we're talking hematology and hemolignancy people. Okay, all right. So this is how to read and interpret blood cancer trials. I took out all the oncology, so we'll keep it, we'll keep it heave for this. Uh, and I guess I should say, what do I do? Uh, so I'm a professor in epidemiology at UCSF, and uh, I attend, uh, I do 14 weeks of service, but I do hemonc consults. We do everything from von Willebrand to sarcoma uh, at the general and at the VA. We've got three hospitals. And then I do the heme and heme malignancy at the general, our county hospital, and then at VA, I do a clinic where it's just all come, whatever walks in the door. So I tried to do a little bit of everything. So in this talk, I don't know, we'll talk a little bit about how to think better about hemolignancies, crossover, and how blood cancer drugs are approved. And then uh, we'll go from there. And you can choose your own adventure at some parts. Let's pick the ones you want to talk about. Let's talk about multiple myeloma. Such an interesting disease to me. <clears throat> you know, back when we were training, they used to think there were two types of myeloma. There was MGUS that turned into myeloma, and then there was de novo myeloma. You never had the MGUS. But then they finally sorted that out in a series of two elegant papers, one in the you know, blood, yeah. uh, where they took frozen blood samples of people who had had their blood banked for decades, and they took everyone who developed myeloma, and they went back to archival serum, and they found MGUS 100% of the time. Yeah. So that's why we know MGUS is an obligate precursor. But of course, you can imagine that in the body, there's a spectrum of how many pla clonal plasma cells you may have in the marrow. You can have very little, <coughs> you can have a lot. If you have like less than 10% and less than three grams per liter, you know, you have MGUS, here's smoldering. You come all the way over here where you have so much plasma cells that you also have end organ damage and you've historically, canonically had multiple myeloma defined as end organ damage plus clonal plasma cells in the marrow. Okay. In 2011, the International Myeloma Working Group changed the definition. You know, one day they said, we will include over 60% plasma cells, we will include MRI findings, so pockets of myeloma on MR, and we will include exquisitely skewed free light chain ratio of over 100. Uh, they didn't really have evidence that treating these people is preferable to treating them when they inevitably get over here. So that's one thing to know. They never had that sort of evidence. They did have evidence that many of these are very, very poor prognostic features for smoldering. If you have 60% plasma cells, you are very likely to develop myeloma in the near future. Oh. Remove that definition. So if I change the definition and I move that bar from here to here, what do I do to five-year survival in myeloma? Let's say hypothetically, no new drugs. I just change the definition one day. The next year, what happens to five-year survival here? Increase. Yes, because you're adding people with like less severe disease. Yes. Now, what happens to five-year survival in smoldering category? Huh? Think about it. Who are you taking out? You're taking the higher risk patients, so yes. it also increases. Exactly. Yeah. So this goes up, and this goes up, and this is called the Will Rogers effect. By changing the definition in the absence of treatment, you've improved five-year survival in both categories. Okay? And it's named after Will Rogers, a radio broadcaster from the 1940s, because he used to tell this joke. When the Okies left Oklahoma and moved to California, they raised the average intelligence level in both states. And that's, the Will, that's, that's why it's called the Will Rogers effect. 
I don't, I don't think he'd get away with that joke these days. <laughs> okay, but my point here is that, you know, I think it can be argued. Let's just pick the last one, free light chain ratio. Do you really need to treat those people as if they have myeloma? And of course, from their own data set, this is the paper by Larson and colleagues that supports treating. These are exquisitely skewed free light chain ratios, and these are not exquisite, like less than 100 free light chain ratio. Smoldering over time, the risk of developing myeloma. And what you see clearly is, if you have less skewed light chain ratios, you're less likely to develop myeloma. But even if you had exquisitely skewed free light chain ratios, at two years, there's still like 25% of people who have not progressed to myeloma. And even at five years, there's still some people who haven't progressed to myeloma. So in the absence of evidence that treating these people improves heart outcomes, knowing that a fraction of people, even with exclusively skewed free light chain ratios, will do well, my practice has always been to kind of play it by ear. If the patient is comfortable being followed closely, I will not treat exclusively skewed free light chain ratio. I don't think we have to accept the slim crab criteria as if they're gospel. They're all, to some degree, unproven. The IMWG, you know, they have their sponsors. Their sponsors have an interest. Their interest is to treat early and often with all the drugs continuously. That's the interest of the sponsors. So, you know, we're the ones who have to ask the question whether or not it's really necessary. Let's talk about high-risk smoldering. You know, we now have two randomized studies that support the treatment of high-risk smoldering, but I think they can also be questioned. So here they've shifted the definition, and here they're trying to get us to treat high-risk smoldering. Now, there's many different criteria for what is high-risk smoldering, including aberrant CD138, including Mayo criteria, Pathema criteria. Uh, they have some discordance. If you put them all and overlap them, you won't get the exact same cohorts identified as high risk. But that said, I think we'll agree, the worst of the worst smoldering are much more likely to progress to myeloma. This is the Spanish study. You know, they keep calling it a phase three study. Every time I see them present, they call it phase three. I don't know what's phase three about 57 and 62 people being randomized. I think that's a stretch. I mean, there is no canonical definition of what becomes phase two to three, but this is a very low sample size. The primary endpoint of the study is progression-free survival. It is not overall survival. And what they find is that revlimidexamethasone versus observation of high-risk smoldering by Spanish criteria is associated with an improvement in progression-free survival, but this was, the, this was the clincher. There is a significant overall survival benefit, not the primary endpoint of the study. This is the Spanish study. Jesus San Miguel Maria Mateos. They've got some problems. Number one, when you entered this study, you didn't have PET-CT at screening. If you don't screen people with PET-CT, then you're going to find some people who have myeloma, uh, and they're being included as high risk. But really, they had myeloma that should have been excluded. So you're not really, it's not really a trial of high-risk smoldering, as we would call it. Two, the primary point is PFS. Three, OS is noisy. What do I mean by this? If you do a small randomized study, and you look at non-primary endpoints, and those endpoints are significant, you can't hang your hat on it. You won't get full regulatory approval because they are, we always think about an underpowered study is like, you're likely to miss a signal when a signal exists. But what is less well appreciated is when you do find a signal, it's likely to be spurious or exaggerated. And to prove that to you, it will take you maybe 15 minutes of math, but it is, it is a matter of fact, statistical fact. Non-primary endpoints, secondary analyses, when you find benefits, they're much likely to be exaggerated, and sometimes they're spurious entirely. And what's a good example? There's a drug called olartamab or Lartruvo, which is a soft tissue sarcoma drug in combination with doxorubicin. was given in a phase two study. Primary point was PFS. The OS benefit was 14 months, and then they ran the phase three study, and a 14-month benefit went to zero, because in a larger randomized study, the secondary endpoint vanished. 
So OS here is very noisy. I think if you replicated this, you could go any direction. Only eight patients on the control arm receive LEN when they progressed. And many people are getting like VMP or getting regimens that we would consider antiquated. And then I call that poor post-protocol care. So for me, the Spanish study does not actually change my practice. Enter the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group. This is, this is uh, Sagar Loniol and colleagues. And they had initially designed what I thought was a pretty good study, Revlimid versus observation. And then they follow people out in time. Uh, certainly there's an improvement in PFS, like taking anti-cancer therapy will delay the time until myeloma, sure. But the real question is, is there an improvement in overall survival? And their initial study said that overall survival would be the secondary endpoint of the study. But when they saw the PFS benefit, they actually, what I say is they sabotaged the study because they crossed everyone over to Revlimid. So we won't get a clean OS signal. Uh, you know, the authors, <coughs> the authors of the study, they argue that smoldering is really two groups of people, people with MGUS and people who really have myeloma. But then my, my criticism of them is, then why would you justify treating somebody who you think has myeloma with single agent Revlimid? I mean, it, it's inadequate therapy. So either you're gonna give them triplet therapy or quadruplet therapy or don't treat them at all. And historically, you know, we, in the 1990s, we had three randomized trials of mel like melphalan regimens versus observation and smoldering. And the primary endpoint was overall survival. And because they didn't improve survival from treating smoldering, we said, we don't treat asymptomatic conditions when we cannot improve survival quality of life versus treating them upon progression. And I think we've kind of changed that paradigm now. So what's my argument? I draw the line here. 80% plasma cells, I'm likely to treat, you know. Uh, just free light chain ratio, I don't. And MRI findings is a moot point. How many times you've made a myeloma diagnosis solely on the basis of MRI? I think seldom. So, you know, and I certainly don't treat high-risk smoldering, I observe. And so I, that's where I disagree with them. And so we wrote this up for blood. Persistent challenges with treating myeloma early. And Maury Gertz had a follow-up paper on how I treat smoldering that sort of makes the same points. <coughs> Okay, now we're gonna use a mantle cell lymphoma example, shine, and another example, crossover. <clears throat> I think it's like the most misunderstood concept in oncology, which is crossover. You always hear, you know, there would have been a survival benefit except the patients crossed over. Or uh, the survival benefit would have been bigger without crossover. Or we didn't want crossover. That would have contaminated the study. And I think we have a big problem with crossover because we don't think clearly about it. So let me try to give you a framework. What is crossover, by the way? In the psychiatry literature, crossover means you randomize 1,000 people with depression to Prozac or placebo. They take it for 10 weeks, you measure depression. Then you have a two-week washout and you cross everyone over to the other. So I can do a comparison of Prozac versus placebo between arm comparison and also intra-individual comparison. Your depression was better when you took Prozac, not when you took placebo. And you can go both directions. But in cancer, you can't go both directions because our endpoints are mileposts. But once you cross, you'll never go back. Progression. And so what we mean is people initially assigned to placebo, when they progress, they get experimental drug. But people who get experimental drug, they do not go back to get placebo. That's what we mean. Unidirectional crossover. One direction. Okay. Another way to think about it, <coughs> if you get the experimental drug, you get standard of care. If you get placebo, then you get the experimental drug. It's another way to think about it. The reason I think we're confused is we forget that there's situations where crossover is desirable and you want it, situations where you don't want it, and you can either get it or not get it. And so you get all four possibilities. If you want it and you get it, that's good. And you don't want it, you don't get it, that's good. 
But if you don't want it and you get it, that's bad. And if you want it and you don't get it, that's bad. Okay. So I'm going to give you an example of these two quadrants. One where we have crossover, you decide which one we, which is good or bad. And one where we don't have crossover. Okay. This is the only example that's non-hematologic because it's really just the best example. And when I find a good hemalignancy one, I'll swap it out. But it's going to be a while. Cipollucyl T. Does anyone remember this? Cipollucyl T immunotherapy for castrate-resistant prostate cancer. What is Cipollucyl T? It's a cancer therapeutic vaccine. So they say that uh, Gardasil is a cancer vaccine. That's an HPV vaccine. How does it prevent you from getting cancer? You get the Gardasil, you don't get HPV, and then you don't get cervical cancer. Okay? This is a cancer therapeutic vaccine. You get somebody who's already got castrate-resistant prostate cancer. You collect either the cancer or some dendritic cells or some, you know, and then you engineer a vaccine that stimulizes, that's a stimulant for the body to have an immune response against their cancer. And that is Cipollucyl T. And when it came out, it was $90,000 a pop. It's the most expensive cancer therapy. These days, 90 grand, we say, that's a deal. I take four, you know? What's uh, Idacel, 420 grand? Yeah, something like that, 400 grand. Cipollucyl T is a deal back in the day, this 2012. Okay, it's a very interesting study. It has an overall survival benefit. Cipollucyl T versus placebo. Hey, can anyone name another cancer therapeutic vaccine we use? It's the only one. For 40 years, we've been testing this class of medications. Hundreds and hundreds of therapeutic vaccines. It's the only one that ever succeeded. But this is OS, huh? The old saying is if you can fit the laser pointer between the curves, you can give the plenary at ASCO. And you can fit two or three laser pointers here. So it looks pretty good. Four month OS benefit, okay? It's strange though, it's the only one ever to be approved, despite 40 years of trial and error. It has a 0% response rate. 0% of people have the tumor shrink. There's no change in time to progression, PFS. But it has that four month OS benefit. So isn't it so interesting? You get the patient, you inject him with the vaccine. It doesn't want to tip you off that it's working. It's not going to shrink any tumor. It's going to lay low. It's not going to change the PFS. It's going to do, that's going to be the same too. But then after you progress, it's going to come out from hiding and start to help the body and you get the four month OS benefit. That's what they have you believe. What's interesting about this study, you're randomized to this vaccine or placebo. If you progress on the placebo, the trial has crossover. So what do you get? Cipollucyl T. And if you progress on Cipollucyl T, what do you get? So now we have a very interesting trial design because it has two moving parts. It's a randomized trial of a novel therapeutic vaccine of which none have ever worked. It has a 0% response rate versus saline injection. And docetaxel versus cipollucyl T. What do you get when you progress on cipollucyl T here? You get docetaxel. So it's early docetaxel versus delayed docetaxel or cipollucyl T versus placebo. And if you look in the fine print, it's actually true. More people get docetaxel here than here, and they get it sooner than they get it here, because they got a crossover. So, which is more likely? That Cipollucyl T is the only, only, only vaccine ever in history to work, and it has no response rate, and it doesn't change progression-free survival, but it also improves survival. Or, the benefit seen in this trial is early administration of a drug that has always had an overall survival benefit in every randomized trial in prostate cancer, including Stampede, including uh, the original Tanox study, including 
all the new trials with Fiz uh, Peace One with Fazazi, or this is the good this is the good drug, you know, which is it? And so the AHRQ says, they commissioned a report on this product, they said, we cannot exclude the fact that survival benefit and the absence of response rate or PFS is actually due to harm to the control group from a delay in chemotherapy due to getting an ineffective frozen salvage product. So they're saying, I don't know if Cipolucil T is better than placebo. I worry that these people are having their time wasted before they're actually getting docetaxel. So back to this chart. This is a study that has crossover, but you see why it's bad because crossover is undesirable in studies assessing the fundamental efficacy of the product. You didn't really even know it had a benefit. You crossed everyone over, and now I don't know if cipolucil T is the benefit or delayed docetaxel is the problem. And so I have no idea. So I think that's a bad. Now let's talk about a trial that doesn't have crossover. Ah, Michael Wang and colleagues. Shine, my favorite study. I hear some people were grumbling about this, but you know, this is a problematic study in my mind. <clears throat> in 2012, there was an ASH presentation about ibrutinib as a salvage drug in mantle cell lymphoma. And of course, it's highly active. It has like a 60 plus percent response rate. In May of 2013, Shine starts accruing. Shine is a randomized controlled trial of ibrutinib in combination with bendamustine rituxin versus bendamustine rituxin in mantle cell lymphoma. Why do we like BR in mantle cell lymphoma? That goes back to the old trial still by Matthias Rummel, which compared BR to, you know, CHOP, our CHOP. You know, so that's why we like BR. It had a better PFS. It was probably more tolerable. You know, this is an East German drug that's been reappropriated to the U.S. market. Um, now, finally, it's, you know, generic. Uh, six cycles and you're done, you know. And China is testing ibrutinib BR versus BR. Primary endpoint is progression-free survival. If you're on the control arm, you have a fixed course of therapy. Okay, you get BR and then two years of R maintenance, then you're done. If you're on the intervention arm, how long does therapy go if you don't progress? It goes forever. Okay, so now we got some asymmetries. We've got three drugs versus two drugs, forever versus halting. Okay, primary endpoint is progression. And if you're on the control arm of BR and you progress, what should you get? In 2013, they published this ASK presentation. In November of 2013, the FDA approved ibrutinib as a salvage drug in mantle cell. And by 2013, I think we were all giving, I mean, I was probably ahead of this. We were giving ibrutinib as a salvage drug in mantle cell. So if you get BR and you progress, what should you get? Ibrutinib. So it's really, it should be a trial of IBR versus BR and then ibrutinib. And this is when Shine halts accrual. This is a period of red, which we'll come back to. You know, they can't say they didn't know that ibrutinib works as a salvage drug in mantle cell because they're the same authors of both papers. Michael Wang is the same, same first author. These are all the same authors, it's the same people. Mantle cell's a small world. They know ibrutinib's active. Now they're running IBR versus BR. And if you progress on BR, what do you get? That's the question. And of course, there's a progression-free survival benefit, IBR versus B placebo BR, but the overall survival is indistinguishable. There's no OS benefit. And you know, IBR has a lot of toxicity. Uh-huh decreased appetite, hypokalemia, arthralgia, back pain. Look, looks terrible. Only 41 people on the control arm out of 262 got, this is not ibrutinib, any BTK product. Ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, any BTK inhibitor. Xanabrutinib, only 15%. Okay, that's my problem with Shine. Because they should have had 100% of people on placebo BR get ibrutinib next line. 
maybe not 100, we'll say 80%, but they have 15%. So it's a trial of IBR versus BR and then negligent care, in my opinion. And they have a PFS benefit, but their OS benefit is null. And I ask you, if they had given ibrutinib as a salvage drug to everyone in the control arm, what would have happened to the OS? I don't think it would be null. I think they would have lost. Yeah, they would have lost. Ibrutinib BR adds toxicity. It has a PFS benefit, but it exhausts the salvage drug. You give BR, rituxan maintenance, wait till they progress and give them ibrutinib, I think you'll have a better OS. So I think it's a very, very problematic study. And it goes back to our crossover because this trial doesn't have crossover. They said that like, it's not our fault. We ran our trial in countries that can't afford BTK inhibitor. Except the problem is the sponsor could easily put a protocol amendment saying that we will provide the ibrutinib for free. It could easily do that. And you know they have a lot of money. They have like $40 billion in revenue from this colossal blockbuster drug. I think that's what Johnson Johnson paid them to license it originally from Pharmacyclics. And now Janssen too. <clears throat> so why was crossover desirable in Chine? Because the drug had already established a benefit in the latter line. And it doesn't have crossover, so that's bad. Okay, so whenever we read about like a clinical trial, I think we have to ask ourselves, sh what should the control arm get? And the first question is, is a control arm of the study the same, what you would do in your practice? And I think for many of us, Shine, that's okay. I'll give BR and R maintenance, but I, I don't think, I don't know, I would always cap it at two years, sometimes maybe give it a little longer, but two years is fine, I think it's reasonable. But when they progress on the control arm, is post-protocol care what you would do in your practice? And in my case, I don't think it is with what Shine, Shine shows. All right. Should we do determination? Maybe I'll come back to determination. <coughs> we should do determination. We should do determination. Oh, well, you're trying to talk about agile. I have agile, determination. Yeah, it's cool. Okay. Let me do some uh, basic Milo and come back to determination. Okay, we'll talk about both. Agile. Agile is good. Agile is good. All right. This isn't just true of myeloma drugs. This is every drug in hemolignancy. Actually, every drug in oncology. Solid tumor too. How do drugs come to market? Okay, if you're the drug company, you have one question on your mind. Does my drug have single agent activity? What does that mean? Activity are measures of tumor shrinkage. I give a drug to 100 people, and if 40% of people have 30% or more tumor shrinkage with a solid cancer, I have a 40% response rate. And that is a measure of drug activity. And if you have a 40% response rate for a new drug in this business, I guarantee you, an uncontrolled study of 70 people, you'll get U.S. market approval. That's a good, that's a decent response rate. The median response rate among drugs that come to market on the basis of response rate, I think is something like 20%. Okay, so if your drug by itself shrink cancer, that's how you get on the market. And in fact, we've seen that a lot in myeloma. Teclistamab, now it's on the market. Majestec, 63% response rate. Selenexor in combination with dexamethasone. So, so Dex is doing some of the work. Dex is doing some of the work. 25%. Okay. But Dex not doing 25% of work. It's doing some, this is doing something. You know, I love how they always say that, um, you know, we're the only people to talk, target nuclear export. And I was like, but that might not make you smart. You know, that, I mean, there might be a reason why no one wants to target it. Okay. mafidotin. Okay. The, ma ma the mafidotin is easy on the eyes, but it's got 32% response rate. Melflufin, which is something like melphalin, but I hear it entirely new and clever. Nothing to do with melphalin, but just kind of like melphalin, a lot. But, and then CAR-T, cell, siltacel. This is really good, right? Much better than this, right? Except what if I get my cells collected for CAR-T and then I die waiting for you to make it? Or what if I get my cells collected and then you call me and you say, can't even make it? 
Does that ever happen? It happens a lot. It happens a lot. And actually, no, actually, now what happens a lot is they say, we can't even make it. The backlog for this is terrible. They're too busy giving eye to sell to MGUS. They don't have any manufacturing capacity. People are dying of myeloma. <laughs> They've got their MGUS trials running full blood. So I corrected this. So, you know, Mani Moyudin and I, we wrote this paper, intention to treat versus modified intention to treat. The way you score response rate is if everyone who enrolls in the study, you've got to look at response among the people who enroll. You don't get to pick people, get your product. And if you correct Idacel and Siltacel for that, for that difference in the denominator, response rate goes to 53 and 84, which actually puts tech pretty close in the middle and Talquetamab pretty close. So people who think CAR-T is better than BITE, I don't see that to be the case. I think BITE has advantages. It's off the shelf. Response rate is comparable. You know, CRS is, if anything, better with tech than it is with Idacel. So I think this is going to supplant this. I think all the CAR-Ts are in for a rude awakening in the next few decades. Not decade, maybe the next five years. All right, but these are the response rates. Give a response rate. What if you've got a drug in myeloma, you give it to people with myeloma, don't do nothing. It just doesn't work. Do you give up? No, you can get to the market, okay? Panabinistat, hello, ELO, hello. You can get to the market with Pano and ELO. But what do you do if you don't have a simulated response rate? You can't do an uncontrolled study of 100 people with a response rate. You have to do a randomized study because you can't do an uncontrolled study because it has no response. In a randomized study, and the primary point has to be PFS, obviously. Go crazy, <laughs> PFS. This is Pano. These are in people who progressed on I forget, four prior lines, including both bortezomib and immunodulatory modulatory agent. And this is like panabinistat bortezomib dex versus placebo bortezomib dex. This is a PFS benefit. You know, you see, this is what brought Pano to the market. And then what happened? Oh, a few years later, the FDA has withdrawn, or the company voluntarily, voluntarily withdrew. I don't know what happened there. What about ELO? ELO is so promising. But when you go ELO, RevDex versus RevDex in Eloquent 1, frontline setting, what's going on? Nothing. ELO is a very unusual drug. It has no single agent activity. And by that, I typically mean response rate less than 10%. No single agent activity. And it works with POMDEX and salvage and RevDex and salvage. But in frontline, it doesn't do anything. A very odd drug, you know? If it were up to me, I would replicate the older studies. And my question is really, is it just the play of chance? Because if you run, 100 randomized controlled trials with a nominal P of 0.05, you're going to get, you know, five significant results if you use one, one side of people. What about drugs you don't remember? You remember Pembro and Nevo? This is Sadhu Smani. Pembro killed people. Shoot, it's killing people. It's worse. And then what about venetoclax? Venetoclax and Bellini. Even though there's a PFS benefit from venetoclax versus placebo, there's an overall survival decrement. It's not on the market yet. But I know many of us are still using it in 11.14. But they have a randomized trial going ongoing 11.14. But it hasn't read out yet. So I'm open-minded. If I were to bet, I bet it's not going to be good. Melflufin. <coughs> we wrote an article, the approval and withdrawal of melflufenamide. Melflufin, implications of the state of the FDA. This is melflin, which has been around for a while. I would argue that melflin might be the single most potent anti-myeloma drug. Because you get, I mean, it's potent on other cell lines too, that's the problem. But in and of itself, melflufin can really blast plasma cells to oblivion. And if you add this little thing on the side, well now you've got melflin flufenamide, and now you're talking about making some serious cash. Because this is new, and this is old. And here's what happened. They gave accelerated approval on the basis of response rate for melflin in February 2021. By July of 20, July 28th, just a few months later, the FDA issues an alert 
says Ocean Trial has a death signal. Be careful when you give it. And then by October 2015, they push for withdrawal. And so what I think is problematic here and, you know, uh, what's problematic here is why did we have an accelerated approval for this? We knew we were getting the phase three study just months later. And now the phase three study has a death signal. And the control arm of that is not even a good control arm. It's not even triplet therapy. The signal is overall survival data shows a 5.2 shorter median OS than pomalidomide. Okay? The company went to the ODAP and they protested the withdrawal. They said, you know, oncopeptides. They say, uh, we don't want to come off the market. Our drug still works. If you take people who didn't have a stem cell transplant or they had a stem cell transplant more than three years ago, in this group of people, it has a PFS benefit to melflufin. Huh? Pretty good. I found you somebody who's benefiting in their study. This is, this is what Paul Richardson presented at the ODAC. And then the FDA showed them, well, you know, if you look at the people randomized in March, they're doing better with melflufin than Palmdex, but if the people randomized in July are dying, so we should only give the drug out in March, <laughs> not July. Okay, what's the point? The point is that subgroups are like, you're playing, you know, we can slice and dice data all you want. You'll always find subgroups that benefit. That doesn't mean it's a true signal. In fact, it's much more likely to be spurious, just like this. So this is a post hoc example leading to false conclusions, which is also what this is. They just don't recognize that to be the case. And so ODAC votes against melflufin. It's on, it's on the ropes. What about Blenrep? You know, I was giving Blenrep, but it's got a lot of eye doctor visits. The mafidotin moiety loves the eye. They even have combos with HER2, and it also blows the eye up. The vidotin loves the fingertips and toes. And uh, the lutetium loves the bone marrow. <laughs> I mean, everything loves something. And in Dream 3, this is the randomized confirmatory study for blantamab mafidotin. Dream 3, the primary endpoint of PFS, is totally null. It has no PFS benefit over POMDEX in Dream 3. And in fact, I don't know why, oh, okay. And in fact, actually, you know, it's been voluntarily withdrawn from the market. Malfufin withdrawn from the market and Bella's withdrawn from the market. Okay. What about Selenexor? You know, Selenexor's confirmatory study is Selly Velcade Dex versus Velcade Dex among people who had already received bortezomib. 70% had already gotten bortezomib. You really tell me you're going to get a 60-year-old woman in your clinic and you're going to treat her with VRD. She's going to progress. You get randomized to the control arm of Boston and she gets Velcade Dex. You're going to give her Velcade Dex and no Carfilzomib, no Dara, no Palm. I think it's a pretty abysmal control arm. And so we write, given that bortezomib dexamethasone has been shown to be inferior to contemporary treatments in clinical trials well before Boston began, why did Sebastian Grosicki and colleagues consider bortezomib dex for the control group in the USA? How many patients in the USA were reported? We wrote this in The Lancet. And then they write, and then Aaron Goodman writes, Boston Journal Club, Sally Velcade dex versus Velcade dex, relapse refractory myeloma one to three lines. 70% had gotten prior treatment with Velcade. It has an increase in PFS. Mayo recommended a triplet, NCCN recommended a triplet, ESMO recommended a triplet, the study start date was 17. How did they approve this study? Or more simply, he calls it Aaron Goodman's Pentad for Bad Randomized Trials. <laughs> PFS yeah. is the primary endpoint, substandard control arm, the PIs with conflicts of interest with sponsor, <laughs> very costly drug, and inappropriate use of crossover because the control arm got Velcade after they progressed. They got VRD, VD, and then some more V. This is crazy. I mean, we have other drugs. Okay, I'll skip that. 
sorry, one point I want to make here before we do determination. We think we're saving time by approving drugs based on uncontrolled studies, but that's a little bit of a fallacy because the time it takes to run a study is you start enrolling somebody now, you enroll people over time. If you have an uncontrolled study, you have to wait for them to respond a few months later, and then you have to follow those responses into the future to measure the median duration of response. You've got three phases, enrollment, responding, median duration. Okay, that takes time. In a randomized study, you just start randomizing and you're measuring the primary endpoint all the time. So you have enrollment and constantly ascertaining the outcome. And actually, if you look at myeloma trials, in Selenexor, the STORM, uncontrolled study, measuring response rate, took 38 months from the first patient enrolled to the result. Boston took 33 months. That's a randomized study. Melflufin, Horizon, took 37 months. Ocean took 44 months. Not that much longer. And actually, if you go through all of them, DARA, 15 months, but 16 months in Castor, 21 months in Pollux, ISA, 36 months versus 21 months in Icaria, ELO, Phase, 48 months versus 41 months in Eloquent 1, 23 months in Eloquent 3, Pano, 21 versus 44. I guess my point here is that randomized trials actually do not take much more time. And in fact, we actually did a paper where we explained this, pro this process, like you enroll patients, and then you have, to you have to wait for the data cutoff. And I guess, let me put it one more way. For an individual patient, I will always respond before I progress, before I die, for an individual. But for a trial in aggregate, sometimes you'll actually get an OS signal before you have a good measure of RR and DOR. It can actually take longer. And in the third line setting, in this paper we published in Medicine, estimation of study time reduction using surrogate endpoints rather than overall survival in oncology trials, we find that in the third or later line setting, the use of response rate versus overall survival, there is no difference in the mean study time. It is 23 months versus 26 months. So in salvage myeloma, we could be running all of the trials we wanted with OS as the primary endpoint. And for pentarefractory myeloma, their median OS is not good. And so I think there's little excuse. So even talquetamab and teclistimab, instead of these uncontrolled studies, I'd rather just see you know, tech versus D, whatever, physician choice, OS primary endpoint. Okay, now I'll go to, let's do determination. Uh, quick question. Yes. Before. So how would you factor in some drugs like uh, panobinostat, which wouldn't be expected from this mechanism of action to have a single agent activity as in heavy stage DOC6, which is like a resistance mechanism to protosome inhibition? Yeah. Blocks the autophagosome. Uh, uh, yeah. So you have a drug that don't, you don't expect single agent activity, uh, then you're going to have to combine You have to do combination. Yeah, yeah. And you have to do randomized study. Right. That's why Pano and ELO, they, they didn't come to market on single-agent activity. Every drug that came to market without single-agent activity was randomized. Mm. And probably the, the most successful one is palbocycline. Palbo, ribo, abema in breast. What could you do if you'd have to probably do uh, pano, dex versus another effective salvage regimen, not including <coughs> What I would have done, you mean if I were to do that study? Yeah. I mean, I think the fairest control arm is, first of all, I want to get my drug approved quickly. So I don't want to go in front line. It's going to take a long, I mean, not a long time. It's going to take more time than pentarefractory. And pentarefractory, in my definition, is two proteasome inhibitors, two immunomodulatory agents, and one CD38 antibody. Okay, let's agree, pentarefractory. You have pentarefractory patients, median OS, in clinical trials is what? Eight months, nine months, 10 months. And in real world is what? Three months, four months, two months. Okay, so I take pentarefractory patients. The experimental arm can be whatever you want. Pano, Velcade, Dex, whatever you want. And the control arm, I would say, should be Dealer's choice, really dealer's choice, but you got to run it in the U.S. and you know Ireland and U.K. and you know you got to run it in places where they have access to like the drugs we have. And I think you know the problem with Pano is that it 
didn't look so good, you know. Toxicity, toxicity and yeah. Okay, let's do Paul Richardson's. So, if you, if you read this manuscript, it really to me feels schizophrenic because you do not know if the authors want you to do transplant or not do transplant. And I think they have like, you know, they have, they have like multiple personality disorder in the writing of it because some people say to do it, some people say to don't. <laughs> and obviously we know transplant makes a lot of money. That's a bias. Transplant puts food on the table. They do this randomized control trial determination and it's a randomized control trial of transplant eligible people to transplant in CR1 versus you could possibly get a transplant later, but you didn't have to get a transplant later, okay? The, the difference between this and the original transplant trials is only two trials exist in the era of novel drugs. Thal, Bortezomib, Len, Palm, Dara, only two trials, and that's the IFM 29, 2009 trial by Michelle Attal, and there's determination. Michelle Attal's study has one problem, which is that if you didn't get transplanted in CR1, so many people got transplanted in CR2. 63, 70%? 78%. 78% ultimately. 78%. So it's really a trial of tra early transplant versus transplant at the next opportunity. But it fails to find an overall survival benefit from early transplant. So in my mind, I took it to mean like it's okay in many people to hold back transplant to you know a, a second or third line. Determination comes along and it has an advantage. It's early transplant versus very few people are getting transplanted at any point in the control arm. One thing I noticed about determination is that even though it's run by an academic committee, they have a medical writer do the drafting and it's paid for by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. I don't say that too often. It's very rare that universities shell out the cash for these sweet, sweet medical writers. <laughs> Progression-free survival is better if you get transplant versus VRD. Okay. And that's what people who want to justify this say, you get a better progression. And if you don't progress, you're presumably your quality of life is better because you haven't had the stigma of the doctor walking in the door and telling you, you progress. And you know the patient is so deflated when they hear that. But what is PFS? I think we forget. Progressive free survival is a certain type of endpoint. It's a time to event endpoint, which by definition cannot happen when you enter the study, it can only happen over time. And in the classic resist 1.1, which is used for most cancers, progression is, from we measure your tumor at baseline, we have like three measurable lesions. It's a time until you die. There's new lesion on the scan. The lungs were squeaky clean. It got new lesions. You progressed. The tumor gets bigger. If it gets more than 20% bigger, it's PD. And if the tumor shrinks more than 30%, it's response. And then here, if it grows 20% from the nadir, it's progression. So PFS is the time to one, two, three, or four, whichever comes first. And we don't really know what's the ratio of it. Okay? These are more important than this. Now in myeloma, progression is you could die, that's a PFS event. You could have new bone lesions or new hypercalcemia, that's a PFS, that's a progression event. Your plasma cell burden can increase 10% on marrow, on subsequent marrow, that's progression. But much more likely is this, the M protein component rises 25% from the lowest it ever goes, but it has to have an absolute M protein component of 0.5 per gram per deciliter. And this to me is a much softer endpoint. You know, you don't walk around and say, I am protein 0.4, good, 0.6, oh God, I feel terrible. Now you don't feel this, you know? This is just the doctor burdening the patient with the laboratory result, okay? It's like, like I don't know my blood pressure and I don't know my LDL, because I don't need to know. <laughs> I don't need to know, I don't want to know. I don't want to be burdened by this knowledge. Okay, all right, so my point is this. If progression-free survival is meaningful post-auto, it will yield an OS benefit. But the problem is, one, COVIX in 2017 showed that there is no correlation between drugs that improve, well actually we showed there's no correlation between drugs that improve PFS and OS 
Uh, and they show there's no correlation between drugs that improve PFS and health-related quality of life. And we have a new paper with Mani, he's the lead, we presented at ASH, that in myeloma, drugs that improve PFS do not always improve OS. So it's a weak surrogacy. Okay. Um, okay, we'll come back to this. So what about quality of life here? So this is the overall survival. Transplant CR1 versus RVD alone, you know, really just indistinguishable. No difference in OS. So in my mind, it boils down to, there's two patient-centered outcomes. Living longer or how you feel. And M-protein over whatever, that's not a patient-centered outcome, okay? Living longer and how you feel. So we look at living longer, it's not better. Let's look at how you feel. How you feel is this. This is a global quality of life. There is a decrement when you get transplanted. It's not fun to be there for that month. Not, neither for the doctor nor the patient. It's not yeah. for, right, it's a long month, okay? But if it is the case that those progression events they're averting are really so meaningful, after this, this will be a rise in the months that follow, you know? Like, they, these people are all progressing later. So quality of life should be better in the red here. But you see that it's no better. So I think, in my mind, it's hard to justify this. It's an intervention that doesn't improve survival. There is no long-term, there's no quality of life to benefit in here. Two years afterwards, where I would expect those delays in progression will matter to people. And somebody says, but there's 20% crossover, you know. But in my mind, you know, that's not that much, you know. And if, and, and if there were really such a huge benefit to that PFS delay, that's happening despite 20% crossover. So my interpretation. You don't need to do transplanted CR1. You don't improve quality of life. In fact, there's a short-term decrement. There's TRM, which is non-trivial. We all say it's less than 5%, but it's not good if you're that 5%. You don't increase OS. 70% of people will never need a transplant. I mean, at least 70%, maybe 80% will never need a transplant. And it might even be higher in the future because we have all these new drugs coming, which may further kick out transplant. And so I do think rates of autologous transplant should fall. Um, I think I tweeted something like, if Medicare just slashed the reimbursement for this procedure, rates would fall overnight. Everyone was really mad at me, but I was like, but that's like just economics 101. Like, you disincentivize something, it'll stop, you know, or it'll, it'll go down. So, okay, those are my thoughts on this. What if you, um, so some of the progressions will be like around six years after auto and then four years with RVD alone. So you might want to follow the quality of life yes. after that three years. Because when they get on their salvage treatment, their quality of life will go down with RVD patients. I guess, but one thing I'd argue with you is like, look at the, where the gap really split happens. Yeah, you know, it's early. And then here, they're kind of almost parallel hazard. But, um, but look, your point is this. When you're talking about quality of life in cancer, we talk about it so much when we collect the questionnaires, which means while they're on trial. But in, in, your, in your cancer journey, from when you're diagnosed to when you die, the amount we're collecting in quality of life, we have a paper on this in Jamin Open, it's this tiny little sliver. It's like eight months here, but we got six years of quality of life when nobody ever collects. And I do think that if we really want to use quality of life as an endpoint, we got to collect for the whole journey. You're right. You got to collect it, you know, until when you enroll on a trial, even if they go on other trials, you just keep collecting the quality of life. Yeah, I think you're right. Yes? How do you think of a better I know. I guess people are working on those. I guess the idea is that, like, financial toxicity, uh, you could argue it both ways. Although transplant is expensive in this country, It'll delay the time until your next uber-expensive drug, okay? And if you don't get it, you will get an uber-expensive drug sooner. And my understanding is there's somebody at Dana-Farber right now who's very good who's doing that analysis. So you're going to get the answer soon. 
because he's running that. He, they have the data and they're running the dollar per quality for either pathway. Yeah, we'll take questions. Okay, go. And another question is, what do you say to people when they tell you like, so like that? We're we're trying to like our our endpoint of PFS is because we're trying to avert like you know. In, in myeloma, for example, we're trying to avert end-stage renal disease or like a fracture, like that's how most patients progress. Like that's what a, a lot of people I know. say. That's what um, said, yeah. yeah, and like, you know, like that's where they're like justifying treating amyloid sort of like smoldering. Yeah. So like, what do you say to that? Okay, very good question. The question is like, why do we treat high-risk smoldering? One of the stated reasons is, and the authors have conceded, we're not improving survival, but the reason is that if you don't treat high-risk smoldering, the first thing that's going to happen, they're going to walk and have a broken femur. Yeah. Or they're going to be on dialysis for the rest of their life. That's terrible. Okay, so two points on that. One, in the ECOG study, yeah. you can go look at it. Yeah. I think that if you were assigned to Revlimid, you have a 2 or 4% risk of secondary leukemia. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's a downside to treatment because secondary leukemia is a death sentence. I've never saved anybody who had secondary leukemia after Rev. And it can happen even in the absence of alkylator. So that's one thing against the treatment early. The second thing is, when people on, with smoldering do progress, what do they progress with? And in the ECOG study, they say people who have renal failure, they just mean elevated creatinine and anemia. They don't have a measure in the ECOG study of how many people are on dialysis and how many have broken bones. When they say bone lesions on ECOG, they mean people who have bone lesions on PET, not people who have broken bones. And, I, and we've asked them, and they actually, they have not collected that data. They do not have that data in their data set. But the Germans just published a very nice paper I think I put a link to it. In one of my videos, you'll find the link. These Germans have a nice study. They took everyone with smoldering who was being followed, and they have a breakdown of all the progression events. And the vast majority are asymptomatic bone lesions on PET, and uh, they have a couple of renal failures, and it, it looks like, 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 the, pro, like progressing on irreversible dialysis is not a common progression event for smoldering, if they're watched closely. Okay, that's what I would say. That's my counterargument to that. And then also, if you treat early, you have to also factor in yeah. leukemia. I mean, if I have smoldering and you give me Revlimid and then I have AML, I'm toast. And, um, and, and not only am I toast, it's a misery. I mean, you know, not, every drug bounces right off that. Uh, and so that's another reason why I think we need either clear OS benefit or really health-related quality of life. Okay, the last thing I'll say, then we do questions on anything, including we go back to Agile. Future things to explore. You know, I run that YouTube channel. We have this whole thing, how to read and appraise medical videos. We talk about quantum, which is quizartinib. We talk about tech, Majestech. Uh, I talk about Dostarlamib. This is the one people always say you're always so negative. This video is the most positive. You never get it. So positive. So positive. Even they were so happy, I heard, in this company that is making the 57th PD-1 drug. <laughs> Just what we needed. Destiny Breast. We have a paper coming in Jam Oncology on this determination. And then this is the plenary session that some of you may listen. Who introduced it? Somebody introduced He He found out from one of you all. You were the, you're the source? Who introduced me? Well, who told you? I found it online. I see. Well, I spending too much time online. I found it late. I found it in like June of this year. <laughs> I see. And then Malignant. Uh, uh, There's a good audio book, I think. The audio book is better than the actual book because I had to narrate it. Okay. Do you want to talk for a second? You ever wonder where? You've heard me say this, probably. Where does response come from? Why is it 30%? Yeah, I have a plug in my bag. But we can also do questions. Let's talk about Let's do questions. Um, Any hemolignancy. 
I, or, career advice, whatever. Yeah. Career uh, advice, we're going to talk afterwards. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And we'll turn off the recording. <laughs> yes, please. Well, I'm going to stay on. We're supposed to talk. Whoever wants to stay, whoever wants to go. Tell us to go, okay. Thank you all. So